Welcome to the Bible Professor Podcast Show. Here is your host, the Reverend Dr. Mal Winstead. Well, I'm privileged today to be joined by Dr. Seth Postel, uh, Dean of the One for Israel Bible College in Netanya, Israel. And uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Postel. It's a privilege to be with you. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. We are talking today about a most interesting topic, one of my very favorites, and it's the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament, or some people say the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. Now, uh, Dr. Seth Postel, being a Jewish believer in Messiah Jesus, he's going to uh, call the Old Testament, for most of my listeners, the Hebrew Bible, although I think you and I both uh, interchange those terms. So, um, yeah. Anyway, um, let me let me set this up because you're going to cover something uh, called census plenier. Mm -hmm. I want to set this up. This is a classic definition, actually, by Raymond Brown, but it's quoted in one of these. Uh, it's three views on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. A, a neat little book I do recommend. But here, uh, here's what Dr. Brown uh, said: Catholic scholar, but this is the uh, this is the general consensus for those who hold to this sort of uh, hermeneutical method. The census plenier is that additional, deeper meaning intended by God, but not clearly intended by the human author, which is seen to exist in the words of a biblical text when they are studied in light of further revelation or development in the understanding of revelation. So it it's a deeper meaning intended by God, but not clearly intended by the human author. And what he's saying there, for again, for most of my listeners, is when the New Testament writer seems to give us clarification on something in the Old Testament. The New Testament author is giving a deeper meaning that the Old Testament author did not intend and probably didn't understand was even there. So let's discuss this issue. Yeah. So it's obviously a subject that I've I've thought a whole lot about, and maybe I can tell you a little bit, a little story. When I, when I came to faith in, in Jesus, it was, you know, I grew up in a in a Jewish family and grew up in a family where Jesus was, was a bad word. Uh, my dad, when he was really angry, you know, the worst word he could use was Jesus Christ. That was, that was, you know, we didn't, we didn't have any engagement with Jesus. I'd never really read the new Testament. I didn't actually never read the new Testament. And um, when, um, when I came to faith and over the years, I just, I, you know, I, I really, really wanted to um, share with one of my family members who was on his deathbed. And I went and, you know, tried to share the gospel. And this family member was probably the most religious in our family. He was regularly in synagogue. And he, he basically said to me, he said, Seth, the reason that you uh, believe in Jesus is that you are are trusting in um Christian translations of our Bible hmm. that have been, that that really are not really tied to the Hebrew and they're wrong. And when I'm better, I'm going to prove to you, I'm going to show you uh, that Jesus cannot be the Messiah according to the Tanakh, according to our Bible. And the premise there was that, um, the premise there was that uh the new testament uh understanding and interpretation of the old testament is 
is not in accordance with what the Old Testament actually says. And therefore, um, because it twists the meaning of the Old Testament, it, it can't really be the, it cannot be true. And so that kind of, you know, the whole notion of, you know, I'm going to prove to you from the Hebrew Bible that your faith in Jesus is not true. And I got to tell you, Mel, that, um, you know, as a Jewish follower of Jesus, um, there's all sorts of challenges that we have. Mm. Um, You know, there are all sorts of challenges that we face. And we, you know, we, you know, for a Jewish person to believe in Jesus is never because of social advantage, at least not in Israel. That's sure. Definitely. Um, there's a price to be paid, and then you, you, the price grows incrementally to the extent that you want to share your faith and be open about your faith. Mm. And so, really, for for a good portion of my life as a believer, I've been involved with um, understanding the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, <laughs> trying to to better understand it. Um, to better understand the Hebrew Bible and to defend our faith from a careful reading of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and so census plenior, uh, the, the, I think the biggest problem with census plenior, at least in the world that I live in, so like it, it appears like circular reasoning. So here's how it works. Here's how it works. Isaiah 7.14 is about the virgin birth of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. This is about somebody in the time of Ahaz. And this word doesn't mean virgin. And therefore, you know, obviously in the historical grammatical context, this cannot be about the virgin birth. Oh, you're right, but you're also wrong. Mm-hmm. Because Matthew, who had a deeper meaning and the Holy Spirit told him, that this, the deeper meaning is that this is about the virgin birth of the Messiah. But I don't accept Matthew's authority. Oh, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. How how do you know that this is about Jesus? Because Matthew tells me, but I don't accept Matthew. Okay, that's your problem. And it just seems to me that, you know, I'll give you one passage that I, I look at often is, is Acts chapter 17, verse 11. I love this passage. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Version. Now, these, that is the people from Berea, were more noble-minded than those in Thessaloniki, Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And it just seems to me that, um, that there's kind of a paradigm here for how we ought to engage with Paul's writings. Mm-hmm. There's a paradigm for how we should engage with Matthew and John and Mark and Luke and Acts and, <laughs> and Peter's writings. And that is when we hear their sermon, we need to hear we need to hear their sermon with our Bibles open or their Bibles open. They yeah. didn't have the New Testament. Exactly. What scriptures is it that they were examining? And so the, the <laughs> point here, Mel, is I think that. So many, so many believers just assume that the New Testament kind of gives a the hidden meaning of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But you know that 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 the word of the apostles um, is some kind of a deeper meaning that that you could never actually or possibly see from a careful reading of the Old Testament. And therefore, you know, our faith entirely rests 
not on the literal meaning of the Hebrew Bible, our faith rests on some notion of a census plenty or a, a mystical meaning that was revealed only in the first century. And again, in my world, that's called circular reasoning. Mm-hmm. Believe in Jesus because he's the Messiah of the Hebrew Bible. Well, how do you know he's the Messiah of the Hebrew Bible? Because Matthew tells us. But I'm looking at Matthew, and then I'm looking at the text he's talking to, and they're not related. Oh, well, Matthew has a deeper meaning. He has a secret meaning. He has a hidden meaning. He's got the Holy Spirit meaning. And so I think that I think that what I really believe, what I see the, the, the Bereans doing is that, you know, they listen to the sermon with their Bibles open. And I, I'm, I imagine you do preaching, and there's nothing worse than preaching to a crowd that doesn't have their Bibles open. Right. But it seems to me that so many yeah. times we read the New Testament without our Bibles open, without mm-hmm. their Bible open before us to seriously engage in the arguments and to try to take seriously and try our best to actually understand how they came to those conclusions without assuming that it's like a Holy Ghost hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping you'll deal with a little more with census plainer, but in light of what you've already said, look. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says the rock that followed the Israelites around the desert was Christ. Is is that new revelation per se, or was that already something the Old Testament writers understood as well? Same with, you mentioned Matthew, Matthew 2, um, out of Egypt, I've called my son, quoting Hosea. Is that something new that Matthew just dropped a bomb there all of a sudden, or was that already, you know, how do we deal with that? And maybe that's a different category. Um, And uh, also, I want to mention uh, these other classic categories that people talk about use of the old and the new, but go ahead. What, what do you, what do you think so far? So, yeah, no, and these are, these are going to always be the classic texts that people refer to. I mean, that's just like automatic. Whenever you say, Whenever you claim that, you know, that we need to be careful readers of the of the of the Old Testament and understand our faith and allow the Hebrew Bible to help us understand our the New Testament better and not not vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, the reaction is always, OK, well, what about, you know, First Corinthians 10? What about, you know, Matthew chapter two? And so let me just start and step back and simply say, Mel, um, there's no way that I can honestly say that I'm going to always be able to explain every single use of the Old Testament in the New. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's right, because, you know, sometimes there are things that are hidden to us or things that aren't we're not always so clear about. Mm-hmm. But let, let me start by saying um, I wouldn't start with the more difficult examples. You, you never make the exceptions, the rules, or you never that's make. I'm not even saying those are the exceptions. I'm just simply saying yeah. Why not at least first be a Berean until you get really stuck, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's been my experience for the last uh, how many years now I've been studying, you know, uh, an approach to the Hebrew Bible called the close reading of the text, which I also apply to the New Testament or text-centered approach. And it has been my experience that the more that I've carefully engaged with the Hebrew Bible— and the own and and the and and also the interpretations of the Hebrew Bible within the Hebrew Bible. I become more and more clear, uh, more and more passages become more and more sensical to me. Oh, I see how Paul got that. Oh, I see how Matthew got that. Oh, I see how, you know, Peter got that. Okay. And so I would simply say that, you know, let's just assume that the Berean model is the right model or it wouldn't be an X, that that ought to be every believer 
is a Berean that I'm going to study and I'm going to commit myself to seriously reading the whole of scripture with, with the belief that, you know, that when the apostles were actually arguing for their faith and the early church was arguing for their faith, they couldn't appeal to the New Testament, nor could they tell people, you have to trust me because I'm an authoritative apostle. That's, they that's such had, a good point. So, they had such a good point. Them. Yeah. John Salhammer used to say, has it ever <laughs> occurred to you that the New Testament church, i.e. the church in Acts, was the New Testament church before the New Testament? So what was their <laughs> what was their what was their Bible? How were they explaining? Mm -hmm. They were explaining the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so I would just simply say, you know, let's just start by the fact that, you know, the the early church didn't sit around scratching their heads saying, What are we gonna do? We have nothing to preach until the gospels are written. We have nothing to preach until Paul sends us some letters. Mm -hmm. They actually saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises of the Scripture. So now, to 1 Corinthians 10, again, what I would just simply say is, and what I suspect is going on there, is that Paul is probably touching on not just a single rock passage in the Hebrew Bible. Mm. I would imagine, you know, there are, there are many passages that kind mm. of deal with rocks. <laughs> right. In, Hebrew Bible. I mean, I the the classic one would be in Daniel chapter two, right? So you have this stone, and and so I would just simply say that I, I suspect. Again, what is Paul specifically doing there? I don't know, but is there any indication that that a rock takes on within the Hebrew Bible messianic significance? Not to mention the fact that you know, in Deuteronomy, in the Song of Moses the rock is God. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so, and so David constantly calls the rock God. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously he doesn't mean the physical stone, mm -hmm. right? but, but the point is, is that, you know, I think Paul, when he's coming to the, to the Hebrew Bible or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, I'm sure that he has a lot of rock passages in his head. Some of which are, clearly messianic and mm -hmm. absolutely kind of refer to god as israel's rock that would be the first thing as far as matthew chapter 2 you know what i find to be really interesting is that you know and i did actually publish an article on matthew chapter 2 actually the gospel of matthew and what i found is that you know if you look at the structure of the gospel of matthew there's this extended analogy to um to, uh, there's an extended comparison throughout the gospel between Jesus and Moses. And so Absolutely. I think Matthew is focused <laughs> on explaining how Jesus is like Moses, but also how Jesus is not like Moses. And by the way, what people often fail to recognize is that in this cluster of allusions and citations that Matthew is referring to, um, it's interesting that there's a, a reference to Exodus chapter 4 in the passage. And just mm -hmm. a few verses later in the passage where that Exodus 4 is alluded to, God talks about rescuing his son out of Egypt. And so I think the point is, is that even, <clears throat> even to say that Hosea, you know, well, that's not what Hosea really means. Well, one thing, Matthew's quotation actually, you know, Matthew, as far as I know, uses the Septuagint quite often. And if you actually look at the Septuagint of Hosea chapter 11, 
it's it's different than Matthew's quotation. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes, is, is Matthew actually quoting Hosea? Is Matthew referring to a, a, a principle or a parallel between God's dealings with Israel and God's dealings with, with the Messiah? You know, you mm-hmm. have this passage in, in, in Numbers chapter 24 about God bringing his Messiah king out of Egypt. And so I would just simply say yep. that <clears throat> if you're going to try to solve Matthew's citation there, you have to look at the larger context and realize that Matthew is building a pattern. Yes. And I wouldn't even call it typology. I would call it analogy. Yeah, and even uh, the macro structure of Matthew, some some have said, you know, his his uh, five sermons are are sort of parallel to Moses's five books. Yeah, um, again, if you if you're interested, we published a book. Um, it's an, an edited book. Um, Craig Evans is one of the editors, and David Mishkin the other. Okay. And it, it's uh, the Jewish roots of the Gospels, the Jewish roots of the Gospels. Okay. And I actually, I actually wrote an article on um, Matthew's Matthew's presentation of Jesus as like and not like Moses. And chapter two is filled; it's filled with analogies to Moses, and so <laughs> much so that you. You know, and again, you think about how the even how the gospel unfolds. In chapter two, he comes out of Egypt. In chapter, yeah, he goes through the waters of his baptism. In chapter four, yeah. he goes into the wilderness to be tested for forty days and forty right. nights. In chapter five, he goes up a mountain to give his disciples his law. I mean, mm. the, the, and, the whole structure is there. Yeah. On that chapter two note, uh, uh, on chapter two, Seth, incidentally, would you see uh, the Herod the Great? issue as analogous to um, Pharaoh? Absolutely. And in fact, also the Magi, the Magi Ah, are acting just like the midwives. They're acting just like the midwives, just like the midwives (laughs) circumvented, you know, Pharaoh to protect the Hebrew children. So the Magi are trying to protect, you know, the the Messianic baby. And so, again, what there, there are plenty of, of, pretty strategic parallels and illusions mm-hmm. that anybody that is immersed in the Torah story is going to say, I get that. You know, I get that. In fact, you know, one, I'm kind of giving you a heads up on a book I'm working on now. And in the book that I'm working on now in our movie generation, we're, we really pick up very quickly on how one movie can allude to another movie and parallels. Mm-hmm. And we get it because we know movies so well, we memorize them. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, if I, if I, you know, even if I kind of use kind of a half phrase from a well-known movie, you're going to be able to finish it because you know the movie well. And so, mm-hmm. to you know, when Matthew or the or the or the or the or the writers of the New Testament are referring to scriptures, and and alluding to scriptures, I I, re- I think that they're they're on the inside. They know the joke. They get it. Mm-hmm. Whereas whereas many believers. You know that don't read the the Old Testament because they think it's old, it's outdated. They miss yeah. the joke. They they get every word. They get the grammar, the syntax. They understand the vocabulary of the apostles, but they miss they miss the the the, the very important allusions to a, the world outside the text that's required to make any sense of the text. Mm-hmm. So um, Abner Chow. Uh, 
he was at uh, he is at I guess still uh, the Master's Seminary in California. But he published a book three or four years ago, and I actually require it for my course on use of the old in the new or New Testament use of the old. Um, and he says that you know census plenier is not the controlling factor in interpreting a New Testament passage that citing the Old Testament, but authorial intent. Do you like that phrase, authorial intent? I do. Again, I think the, the, the issue here, Mel, is that it, it, for me, my world, I, I live in a world that, you know, in, in a religious context that's hostile towards the New Testament, mm -hmm. that constantly is claiming that the New Testament rips the Old Testament out of context. Right. And, and so I... I cannot, I cannot, but I I have to, for the sake of my calling, for the sake of my ministry, I have to look and try as best as I can to understand how in the world the New Testament writers came to the conclusions that they did. And again, mm -hmm. my training is in what's called a literary approach to the Hebrew Bible. That's my training. I trained... <clears throat> You know, both with John Selhammer, but also here in Israel with some leading scholars okay. in the literary reading of the Hebrew book, Israeli scholars that are not believers, mm. that, that gave me incredible tools to just go back and try to understand literary structure, macro structure, you know, plays on words, and you know, inclusios. And, mm -hmm. and what I've found time and again is that to the extent that I'm more engaged to the extent that I'm more carefully seeking after the verbal meaning of the Hebrew Bible, to that extent do I find that I find very great explanations for the New Testament's use of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, and so this is where, again, I, I simply cannot concede census. Th think about it this way. It doesn't mean that there's not there's no progressive revelation. It doesn't mean that Paul or, or Jesus can't say something new or or maybe right. a new application of an Old Testament passage. I'm not saying that that's not possible, but I, the whole notion of census plenier came about specifically because the church couldn't explain how the New Testament saw Jesus in old the Old Testament passages. Right. Just core, <clears throat> it's fundamental to our faith. And so if you can't explain how Peter gets up and uses Psalm 16 to mm. prove the resurrection, if right. you can't show how, you know, the, the, the apostles saw Judas, the prophecy of Judas in Psalm 109, right? If you can't show that Matthew really intended a virgin birth, but you realize to give those up would mean to give up the core of your faith. And so now what you have to do then is try to defend it some other way. Mm -hmm. And so the way you would defend it is say, okay, they had Holy Ghost hermeneutic. They saw things that yeah. the original authors didn't intend. Now, if these were marginal issues, no problem. But for me, my faith and my ability to stand and defend my faith rests and falls on specifically those passages that the New Testament scholars want to say, oh, that sense is plenier. Yeah. I can't go. I I can't abdicate. I can't I can't go there. And you know what? The amazing thing, Mel, is over the years I found again and again I don't need to go there. 
Right. There's no reason to. If I if I can actually come up with a textually satisfying explanation, a contextually satisfying explanation of a passage in the Hebrew Bible, then then what I find is then I become even more excited about the New Testament because it affirms to me that my faith in the New Testament is correct, that it's worth being hated by my people. It's worth being yeah. rejected. It's yeah. worth being persecuted. It's worth getting worth having these in, uh, these inflammatory videos made against me. Mm-hmm. It's worth it because I'm, I'm standing up for the truth. Amen. And by the way, maybe just a little kind of a, how would I say, a, to put in a good word or a kind of an advertisement. I mean, I don't, not that yeah. I'm advertising anything, but we actually have a, a podcast series called um, a, The Case for Messiah. Yes. A New, a New Testament defense of, uh, of the Old Testament faith. And the whole point of that series is actually to engage specifically with the arguments used against these anti-missionaries mm-hmm. prove to the Jewish people that Jesus cannot be the Messiah and that the, the New Testament is wrong. And so what we do is we're doing this series to actually look at all these key passages that kind of seem hard to defend, and then we break them down. We provide the rationale for the arguments against the Messianic interpretation, and then we show by a close literary reading that the messianic t- interpretation makes a whole lot more sense. Yes. Don't worry. I was actually going to mention that at the end, but uh, Case for the Messiah on YouTube, uh, friends, I highly recommend it. I'm listening to it and learning a lot as well. Um, and I appreciate you, Seth Postel, for joining us today uh, from Israel. I want to ask you, I want to push a little deeper on on this use of the old and the new and See if you can give examples or maybe you need to tweak my off-the-cuff assessment here of seeing these messianic notions in the New Testament that they're already latent in the Old Testament, but they understood that. So my thing is, okay, the Old Testament authors in some instances were already using other prophets uh, assessment of the Messiah. They were already using notions, concepts, passages. Um, I mean, look, Daniel is reading Jeremiah for his morning devotions in Daniel 9, but there are other even more specific uh, uh, passages that are quoted in the New Testament. So you have the issue of, um, I think others call this intertextuality. The, the Old Testament authors are already using other Old Testament authors, but also I know from your Case for Messiah podcast, uh, Seth, that a lot of how you personally dig out or, or, or observe what's there is simply a larger context. So instead of like Isaiah seven fourteen, you need to look at chapter seven through eleven. That's just one, for instance. Right. So those two ways to see, observe clearly what's in the text. I mean, would there be more? Would you agree with my assessment or give yeah. some more examples? So, you know, it's interesting, just a a note on the word intertextuality, I was kind of, you know, I learned the notion of intertextuality's connection between two texts. Interesting in Israel, in the context of academic studies here in Israel, intertextuality has more to do with not just connections between texts, but between cultures and Uh and everything that goes into that. And so actually intertextuality is not, 
is typically a word used uh, not to refer to an a thoroughly intended allusion okay. to another text. So it could happen to be that, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars are connected in their genre, but, you know, George Lucas never intended to parallel Captain Kirk with, you know, and, and Luke Skywalker. Okay. So that <laughs> might be contextuality. Okay. Here, um, here we use the, the notion of illusion because illusion there, then you have the diachronic notion mm -hmm. of a, a later text intentionally pointing out an earlier text. In other words, using mm -hmm. words and phrases and specifically to 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 uh, interact with an earlier text so i would call that illusion or in many cases inner biblical interpretation or inner biblical illusions okay? yeah uh, R michael rydell I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with him he he uses this term inner biblical exegesis i think is his yeah. but so yeah so i've weaned myself off the word intertextuality i don't use it in my publications anymore in part okay. again because my conversation is here in Israel, and if I use intertextuality, uh, it's going to mean something very different in my context. Okay. But, but again, praise God for John Selhammer, my, my doctoral mentor. He used to say that, you know, we'll never truly appreciate the New Testament's use of the Old Testament until we start getting a notion of the Old Testament's use of the Old Testament. And so, you know, just one example, I guess, would be, you know, in Psalm 72, uh, which is a pretty significant psalm in the structure of the book of Psalms. It's the mm -hmm. seam. Uh, it's the last psalm in book two. It's it's the it's a psalm that kind of it closes with kind of a, a, a compositional um, notation. You know, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, which means that you even have kind of an, a notion that this psalm doesn't just this 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 superscription or postscription or doxology doesn't just end the psalm. And it doesn't even just end book two of the Psalms. It actually ends all of book one and two. So you've got this kind of mm. note that says, I want you to read Psalms one and two <clears throat> together, or sorry, book one and two together. So Psalms 172 <clears throat> are identified here as the prayers of David, okay? And mm -hmm. what's really interesting is that Psalm 72, a, a Psalm of Solomon, there are all <laughs> sorts of strategic allusions to the different poems, the eschatological poems in the Torah, okay? Most notably is verse 17, which if you're looking at the Hebrew, I don't care how you translate, how do you translate that? And I, but let me just read the verse. And blessed be his glorious name forever. This is this king. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Uh, sorry, no, I'm in the verse, verse 17. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines, and let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. You know, let all nations be blessed in him. Like, however you want to translate that is one thing. But what is really, really clear here is that the language here of blessing themselves in him, being blessed in him, and then all nations, this is lifted almost word for word in terms of the text from God's promises to Abraham. It's the Abra it's the God promised that he would bless all nations through the seed of Abraham. And what I find also even more remarkable is if you actually look at the Septuagint of this passage, the Septuagint recognizes immediately that this is a, an allusion to Genesis 12:3, Genesis 28:14, God's promise to Abraham. 
And so it adds, Pasei haifulai teis and all the tribes of the earth. In other words, it, I'm not saying that's the original text, but it was obvious by this addition mm-hmm. that you have a passage that is looking at God's promise to Abraham and reading it as, as being fulfilled in an individual, in the Messiah. There's no way you could ever understand Galatians 3.16 about the seed and through the seed and the seed mm-hmm. is Messiah. You would never understand that passage. You could easily say, oh, that sense is plenty or, but for the fact that you actually have right here a messianic interpretation of God's promises to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And who is his, who is his seed in Psalm 72? The messianic king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff. Wow. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that specific example. Okay. Okay, Seth. So let me uh, move on to mention some other uh, contemporary categories, at least in uh, Western Bible scholarship here in the States uh, specifically. Um, you know, there's a uh, typology, um, Pesher Midrash, uh, Midrash corporate solidarity. That's the uh, um, Matthew 2, Hosea 11 thing. And then there's the uh, contemporary rabbinic methods like you would find in the classic work of Richard Longenecker. Do you see any value in trying to ascertain whether Jesus, for instance, was using those rabbinic methods? What's your take on typology? Can you just comment on a couple of those things? So actually, I'm working on a book. It's going to be a couple of years in the making where I'm actually going to kind of kind of put critique on the typology movement. I actually, okay. I, I published an article on typology and I kind of, when I publish my next work, I'm going to repent publicly for using the term. I think in Israel, the word typology typically, um, at least in the academic circles and in Jewish circles, it actually means an allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament that has nothing to do with what the, the Old Testament really means. Mm-hmm. And so typology as a category is is not only useless, it's actually counterproductive, at least in our circles. Yeah. Um, and I also think that a lot of the, the notion of typology can actually be better explained. Um, there's a difference between um, a hidden meaning in a passage and a comparison between two things. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, like Jesus lifted up this this the snake on the stick, right? Yeah, and, uh, John 3, right. The word there says like. Mm-hmm. So why would I have to say that Moses intended that passage to be about Jesus or about the Messiah? All that, you know, couldn't it be that just Jesus is making a comparison and that's the extent of it? There's no type there. He's making a legitimate comparison between two things. And he's saying, just look there, what, what's going on there? And just like that happened there, so the Son of Man will be lifted up for the healing of, of the people, for the nations. And so I find that sometimes... Interesting. The whole notion of typology, um, you know, I, I would also argue that it's very clear that with, within the Hebrew Bible, there's a system of constantly comparing one passage or one story to another. Um, it's called narrative analogy. And Selheimer used the term narrative typology. And again, I'd say 90, 99.9% of everything I know is his. <clears throat> And the very tiny marginal addition that I've learned, you know, but one of the things I've kind of, I think narrative typology is kind of 
it's a problem because typology has come to be associated with kind of nothing, not really rooted in authorial intent. Okay. And, and what I, what I see is that comparisons in the Hebrew Bible are very common and comparisons in the New Testament to the Hebrew Bible are very common or analogies and even analogies within the New Testament in books are very common. And so typology makes me uncomfortable because basically it gives people license um, to kind of to kind of allegorize a text okay so uh, you know i'm kind of going to put the brakes on more to come when i actually spend time dealing with you know and there's been some new books out like james james hamilton recently wrote a book where he tried to present a a text-centered more textual rooted uh, book on typology. I, I I also there sometimes find that, you know, you're kind of, you already have the conclusion in your mind, Jesus. And so any possible, any and every possible connection is not thoroughly investigated in its context. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. Oh, that's Jesus. Yeah. And sometimes, right. sometimes it just, it's like, it's too quick. And then it becomes indefensible if it's actually attacked in my circles. When you have some very sophisticated um, polemics against the New Testament, or the you know, it, some of these you know that typology becomes almost impossible to defend. In fact, it is often it is impossible to defend. Okay. As corporate solidarity again, um, I, I think why use that? Why use a? I don't think that the New Testament is doing anything different than the Old Testament, and so. Mm-hmm. You know, you have parallels between Abraham and Moses. You have parallels between Abraham and and Israel coming out of Egypt. And I wouldn't, you know, do we call the comparison between Abraham and Israel coming out of Egypt corporate solidarity? <laughs> right. You just call that That's an analogy. Point. I mean, yes, why? So why would I, I? I see a lot of times that the things that the authors in the in the New Testament are doing. They're immersed in Israel's literature, and they know the methods that, mm. that that are going on within the Hebrew Bible. And so why would I invent categories that are unnecessary if I already have categories that exist and work really well within the context of, of studying the Hebrew Bible? That's number one. Um, number two, as far as rabbinic methods of interpretation, you know, and were the New Testament authors using rabbinic methods of interpretation? Well, what I find to be really interesting, and particularly in the writings of, of a lot of the Israeli scholars that are text-sensitive or text-imminent scholars, mm. what they'll do is they'll show how a, one passage actually intentionally alludes to or interprets or takes up another passage, and then they'll show how many times the ancient sages and ancient Jewish exegesis noticed those connections because they were reading the text textually. So the question is, are the method, are the methods in, is the meaning in the method? Or do some of these methods actually hone in on textual strategies mm. that are in the text? Yeah, because that's a big difference. And, and so if, if the ancient rabbis, the ancient Jewish exegetes are noticing real literary connections, real literary links, real literary devices, and the New Testament authors are noticing those same things. I'm not going to say that the New Testament authors came to their conclusions because they use Jewish methods of interpretation. I would say that they are they 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 actually 
they're picking up on textual strategies that are in the Hebrew Bible. And again, uh, Richard Longenecker, what I find to be problematic in his argumentation, you know, is that he leaves me in a situation where the only way I'm ever going to find the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible is through the through a method of interpretation, hmm. not in the actual text itself, okay. but in the methods that the New Testament authors used. And and so what I have again, you've cut my legs out from under me. I can no longer argue. I can no longer argue that indeed we have found the one of whom Moses and the prophets did write and speak. <laughs> okay. We're joined today by Dr. Seth Postel. Thank you. And uh, back though, the typology thing, you mentioned John three, you know, where he's quoting from numbers 21, where the event happened with the raising the serpent up on the pole in the wilderness. And, and, and you're, you, I think you said, you know, is Jesus's point there, a, a type, a, 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 an antitype, and a type, and blah blah blah. Maybe the point is simply Jesus is not saying, "Hey, that serpent on the pole represented me in some sort of strange way." But the point, actually, in the Numbers twenty-one passage, is God's people having faith, having faith in God, is the point. The point is faith, not the analogy of an object on a pole necessarily, and also over picking up on that faith notion over in Romans 3 and 4. Man, I, do I love that passage of Scripture. Paul says also, he he, he um, focuses on faith, and he says, this was already manifestly mentioned in the Moses and the prophets. It's already there. Salvation by faith is already there. He uses Abraham as his prime exemplar, and he gives the chronology of the faith and the circumcision, which came first. And he goes to the actual chronology of what is in the text. You can't get away from that. So, in fact, it's really interesting if you actually go to Romans and we'll go there really quickly, because I love this passage. Absolutely. In Romans, in Romans 3.21, so you basically, he says that, you know, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now, I'd say the first word, for, the first time that law appears here. He's talking about apart from Sinai, apart from the Sinai covenant, mm -hmm. apart from obedience to the Mosaic law code, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law. I would argue here, here it's the entire book, mm -hmm. the Pentateuch mm -hmm. and the prophets. Then he goes on to explain this righteousness, okay, that has been manifested, that's been revealed through the law and the prophets, i.e. the Hebrew Bible or the Greek New Testament, whatever you want to call it. Then he goes on and he says, okay, there's, there's, you know, verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Here, again, it's very clear that he's not talking about the Torah as a whole, but specifically mm -hmm. the law code of Moses, right? The Sinai covenant. But then he argues in verse 31, do then we nullify the law through faith? Okay. And again, here, it's really interesting. May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now you think, what in the world did he do here? Well, he's going to actually explain what he means by establishing the law. I'm going to prove to you that what I'm saying is fully consistent with the law and the prophets. Here we go. I'm going to establish to you that the gospel I'm preaching, that's by faith apart from righteousness, that's based on, here it is. And so now he's going to show how he establishes the law, Romans 4, 1 and following. And mm -hmm. he shows and he exegetes the texts and he's not he's not using any census plenier. He's saying, look at. This is what happened. Abraham right. believed God was credited him as righteousness, right? Exactly. When did this happen? And so, again, 
if we pay very careful attention to what Paul is doing, he, 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 he's, he's, there's no typology here. There's no, there's no, you know, allegory here, right? He's, right. he's carefully exegeting texts to defend his gospel from the Torah. Exactly. Um, let me close with this quote from Michael Rydelnik. He says, the whole idea of census plenier is highly questionable, end quote. You'd agree with that then, right, Seth? I, I would definitely put the brakes on. In other words, I'm not denying that there are later insights and interesting twists and applications to the Old Testament. Right. But the okay. whole notion of census plenior basically became necessary because the church could no longer defend the key messianic passages in the New Testament that, that are cited in the New Testament by careful reading of the Old Testament. They couldn't see again. And the problem was not the problem was in their methodology of trying to figure out how the, the authors of the New Testament arrived at their conclusion. So census plenier to me represents an attempt to basically agree with the Jewish community that the Old Testament is not about Jesus, literally, but that the New Test the Old Testament is about Jesus spiritually. And and that to me is what census plenier is all about. And to me, that destroys our ability to defend our faith from the law of the prophets and the writings. Okay. Joined today by Dr. Seth Postel. And so at the end of the day, Seth, you would uh, recommend to our listeners to be more like the Bereans in Acts 17.11. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And listen, for my course, uh, Use of the Old in the New, uh, I usually require this new Abner Chow, Biblical Hermeneutics book. I require Michael Rodelnik, The Messianic Hope. I require uh, this Three Views book uh, and G.K. Bill's handbook, which is a much smaller version of that big 50-pounder one he and Carson. Do you have any other recommendations for Bible students wanting to dig into use of the old and the new, at least a couple recommendations where we could glean something useful out of it? Well, I'm going to get myself in a little bit of trouble here, but I think that I think one of the biggest, um, my biggest griefs and sorrows is that, you know, in seminaries and your people that work on doctorates, uh, they don't learn modern Hebrew as a research language. Okay. Because I would argue that um, Israeli scholars, I mean, we know the Jewish scholars, we know Robert Alter, we know, you know, Meir Sternberg and Shimon Barifrat, and we know... There are certain names that are kind of we've come to get to know, and I would I would argue that you know Israeli scholars um, have some amazing works both both in Hebrew and in English on on the literary reading of the Hebrew Bible. And I think if we actually I recently published a, a chapter in a book that basically said how to learn to read the New Testament from Israeli scholars, and so you've got names you've got names like Jonathan Grossman. Um, anything you can get your hands on by Jonathan Grossman is gold. It's gold. He's amazing. He's the head of the Bible Department of Bar-Ilan. Okay. Phenomenal scholar. Um, just a great, a great human being, actually. I really appreciate him as an individual. And he's done some amazing work. He wrote, he published a book in Eisenbrown's on Esther, but he's got articles in um uh Vetus Testamentum. He's uh He's got a commentary series uh, through Genesis, and now he just published one on Leviticus. I think it's some of them have not yet been translated into English yet. He actually has a textbook 
on literary readings uh, of the Hebrew Bible. It, I don't know that it's been translated yet into English, but it's to me, these are the tools that I'm, I'm constantly reading the Israeli scholars and just amazed at the things I've learned from them. Uh, you know, you have Michael Avios, you have um, Eli Assis, um, you have Joshua Berman doing great work on narrative analogies. You have uh, Yeir Zakovich doing phenomenal work on literary readings of the Hebrew Bible. And so I would, I would encourage um, your listeners uh, to maybe to start to familiarize with themselves with literary readings and text-centered readings here in Israel of the Hebrew Bible. And I think what they'll find is incredible insights into the New Testament. Even though these scholars are not specifically speaking about the New Testament, I think they're unearthing literary strategies that actually help us make much better sense of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. Okay. Thank you very much. And I'll get those titles from you uh, and uh, put those in the uh, link below uh, for my YouTube channel. But also, um, shall I put the link for One for Israel Bible College down here so folks what can? You, what, yeah, what you just put the link for One for Israel Bible College. But also, if you don't mind, also the link to to uh, the case for Messiah, the channel. I think oh, that absolutely. would be a really helpful. That would yes. be a really helpful tool for the for for the listeners because then they'll get a taste of of actually, you know, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Right? I'm trying to explain. I'm trying to show. That's right. Actually, how we actually defend the New Testament with a careful reading of the Old Testament. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I'll do that. Thank you for joining us uh, today, Dr. Seth Postel on The Bible Professor. You are most welcome.